0: This is sort of like a dream. They handed me an open mic, and they said, go ahead, you can talk all you want to up to 23 minutes about anything you want. And most writers never get a chance to talk, so I'm going to take advantage of it. Uh, The problem in my case is I come from a town called Ridgefield, Connecticut, which is full of writers, and most of them talk a lot. So when you get to parties, unless you talk very loud and fast, you can't talk at all. But here I am, here I go. Uh, I'm supposed to be, and I quote, a funny writer, end quote. And people ask me all the time, how does one get to be a funny writer? I know how not to get to be a funny writer. Uh, The first thing not to do is don't go to journalism school at the University of Wisconsin, which is what I did way, way back when the Earth's crust was cooling off. Um, I was class of 1943, actually, and I majored in journalism, and in those days, if you majored in journalism at Wisconsin, you took all sorts of valuable practical courses, like typesetting by hand, uh, editorial opinion in the press, laws of libel, courses that stood me in good stead in the years afterwards, like uh, typesetting by hand. I was once in Williamsburg, Virginia, and I saw someone setting type by hand, but outside of that, never. Anyway, I graduated from Wisconsin, and at that time there were no jobs for women in journalism. Couldn't get a job anyplace, and especially in my case because I lived in New York. When you would go into a city room and ask for a job, if they found out that you graduated from journalism school, the editors would bodily throw you out. They had no use for J school graduates in those days. However, World War II came. All the copy boys were drafted in the New York newspapers, and they were forced to hire girls instead. So that's when I got my big break. I was hired as a copy girl at the old New York Journal American, which was, I think, down in this section by the Fulton Fish Market. And let me tell you that getting hired by a Hearst paper fresh out of journalism school and fresh out of editorial opinion in the press was what is today known as a cultural shock. The first thing you saw when you walked into the city room of the old New York Journal American was a big sign on the wall. It was the sign put there by the management. It wasn't a funny sign. And it said, remember, many a good news story has been ruined by verification. The first day on the job, when I got home, I told my mother, oh, it's so interesting because all the rewrite men sit at big desks in the city room and they drink an awful lot of Coca-Cola. They have bottles of Coke on their desk and they sip from them all day. And it was about ten days before I found out it was really in the bottle of Coke. Uh, The reporters and rewrite men were so used to yelling, boy, when they had copy to give out, that they didn't bother to change it to girl when all the boys turned into girls. So they yelled, boy, and the city editor, I don't think I'll tell you his name because he's still around and he might sue me for slander or something, but the city editor at that time was a real front-page city editor, tough. And he was used to yelling a lot and ordering people around, and he didn't realize that we copy girls were very sensitive creatures. As a result of which, there was always some girl sobbing her heart out in a corner of the Journal American city room because the city editor had yelled at her. At that time, I made $32.50 a week as a copy girl, and these were American Newspaper Guild salaries. Uh, Among other things I did besides running copy was run the numbers, the policy numbers at that time. I didn't know I was running them, and uh, uh, I didn't know that I was carrying the numbers from the AP teletype to the linotype operators. All I knew was that the linotype operators would hold the press until I rushed in, with the winning policy number for the day in my hand. At that time, they got it off, I think, uh, the Cincinnati, Cincinnati Clearinghouse closing numbers. Uh, however, the uh, district attorney closed in shortly afterwards, and that was stopped. I my way gradually up to getting the Daily Weather Report, uh, and I was writing obituaries when I left to get married. However, my marriage ended in divorce, so. Again, I say that is not the way to break into professional funny writing. Uh, The next job I had was on a weekly paper. At that time, uh, weekly reporters were paid by the inch. I got five cents an inch, and I'm here to tell you, you have to write a lot of inches to make any money. I finally complained to my editor that I could not live on writing at five cents an inch, and he said, all right, you can get ten cents an inch from now on. And I said, I can't live on ten cents an inch. And he said, for heaven's sakes, I've just doubled your salary. What do you want? I was also fired from my job on the weekly newspaper because, among other jobs, society news, uh, News of New Neighbors, uh, and I was was a fluoridation expert. My my editor decided to have a campaign to fluoridate the community water, and I wrote the articles on fluoridation. Anything anybody wants to know about fluoridation, call me. Uh, But I was fired from that job because I was also writing what I thought was a humorous weekly column, poking a little quiet fun at the local police and the local... A power company, except the local police didn't think it was funny, and neither did the power company, and neither did anybody else that I poked fun at, so I was fired again. After that, I got a job for a public opinion research firm, which hired housewives uh, to do part time work. And we were supposed to go from door to door getting people's public opinion on things. However, in Connecticut, where I live, the winters are very cold. And when it snowed or rained, we got into the habit of sitting home and taking our own public opinion. And when the man who ran the poll found out, he fired us all. And nowadays, whenever I read in New York Times or any newspaper that a public opinion research poll shows this or that, I have this mental picture of thousands of housewives all over the United States sitting home and taking their own public opinion. Well, all I have been able to tell you so far is how not to get to be a funny writer. I think how you get to be is you get fired a lot and you arrange for terrible things to happen in your life, like divorce and losing jobs, and then you write funny about them. Uh, My first book, eight books ago, was called Life Without George. And it was a lucky book because it was bought by Lucille Bull and has been the basis for The Lucy Show for years and years and years, which is a very lucky thing because I get a royalty on every show, and all I have to do is go to the mailbox and get the check out of it. If a writer has to live on the hardcover copies he sells, he practically starves to death immediately. Uh, figure it out. If my, Say my notebook sells for $4.95, but say $5. Dollars, I get 10% royalty. Right off the top, my agent gets 10%. Then I have to pay my advance payment back to the publisher, plus taxes, plus all expenses. So you can see that when people come up to a writer and they say, I'm just dying to get your book at the local library and I'm on the waiting list, it's very irritating. Or people, other things people say to writers, it's irritating is, I loved your book, I've loaned it to all my friends. Uh, let's see, to get back to how to become a funny writer. Well, uh, looking back on my long career of arranging disasters to write funny about, the most disastrous thing that ever happened to me was my trip to the Soviet Union last summer. Uh, I wrote a book about it that's just been published, and it's called Are You Carrying Any Gold or Living Relatives? Uh, The title is what Moscow Customs Control asks you when you enter the Soviet Union. And those were about the last words I understood in my two-and-a-half months in the Soviet Union, although I did take a linguaphone course before I went. However, if it is possible to flunk a linguaphone course, I flunked it. I entered the Soviet Union speaking six phrases in Russian, and I will tell you what they are. I will not attempt to tell you in Russian in case any of you listening speak Russian and would have possibly a heart attack on hearing my accent. I could say... Hello. I am an American. I do not care to sit down. This soup is too salty. I have lost my passport. Take me directly to the American embassy. Fortunately, I had a friend along who translated for me. My friend's name was Nila Magidov, and she was Russian-born. And the two of us flew into Moscow, and we rented a car in the Moscow version of Hertz Rent-A-Car, and I drove it 4,000 miles south to the Turkish border. We had no tourist guides with us, nobody but ourselves, and in the whole trip we only had one mishap. We were arrested and fined 10 rubles because the car was dirty. It's sort of a crime to have a dirty car in the Soviet Union. I don't know why. I will bring you some reports on the Soviet Union that are not found in Pravda. When you run over a Soviet chicken, it costs you 10 rubles. If you're going to the Soviet Union, take along with you a sink stopper. One of these sink stoppers you get in the dime store that you put in the bathtub when you want to take a bath to keep the water from going down the drain. Because while the Soviets have learned to weld on the moon, they have not yet discovered that in order to keep water in a bathtub, you need a sink stopper. In Moscow, we stayed at the Hotel Russia, which has 5,000 moons and no sink stoppers. The favorite American authors in the Soviet Union are Theodore Dreiser, Ernest Hemingway, and someone whom the Russians persist in calling Mark Twain. The favorite movie star when we were there was Mario Lanza. And in every city and village we went into where there was a movie theater, a Mario Lanza movie was playing. Uh, American jazz was very popular, and we heard till we thought we'd go out of our minds I, 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 Delilah, and Hello, Dolly. As a matter of fact, we went to a wedding in Odessa, and the bride walked up the aisle to the strains of Hello, Dolly. Let's see what else. Oh, in the classless society of the Soviet Union, where everyone is equal, as Orwell said, but some are more equal than others, there are three classes of travel, first, second, third, and on a cruise ship, which we took, there's also fourth class. Fourth class is with chickens. When you fly Aeroflot, which is the official Soviet airline, it's also the unofficial Soviet airline because it's the only Soviet airline, before you take off, the stewardess asks each passenger if the passenger plans to be sick on the flight. If you plan to be sick, she gives you a sick bag. If you don't plan to be sick, she doesn't give you a sick bag. And if you change your mind in the middle of the flight, it's too late. You don't get the bag certain things to avoid on your trip through the Soviet Union. Avoid all bureaucrats, all Red Army generals, and in-tourists, if possible, although this isn't possible, because they are the official tourist bureau. An in-tourist's favorite word is impossible. Whatever you ask them for, they immediately say impossible. Uh, I don't think the Soviet Union has yet grasped the basic fact of tourism, which is to encourage people to be happy in the country they're visiting. Soviet television has no commercials. Uh, And if Newton Minow thinks American television is a vast wasteland, I wish he would go over to the Soviet Union and spend one night in front of a Soviet television set where in the great long gaps between the programs, instead of a sour stomach devil coming out or a washing machine that talks, Uh, All there is on the screen is a picture of a hammer and sickle. It just sits there and sits there and sits there. Um, Oh, Also, Lenin's mausoleum in Moscow. If you have to stand in line for a long time to get in, forget it, because nothing is going on. He's just lying there, Lenin. Stalin used to be there, but he's not there anymore, and nobody asks where he is. Um, The Russian people we met were great people people. They were friendly, and they were curious, and they wanted to know all about America. They had never seen woman drivers before, because women just don't drive in the Soviet Union. They drive trucks for the collective farms, and uh, when the car we were driving, incidentally, is called a Volga 21. It's a small car. It's the uh, only one of two cars manufactured in the Soviet Union, and it would sell for $7,000 American money. And when we told the Russian people that in this country it would cost about $2,700 and that many families here have two cars, they simply couldn't believe us. They, they didn't believe an awful lot of things we told them about America because it's not in their um, experience. For instance, when we got over there, we were supposed to fly Pan American into Moscow, but Pan American had gone on strike. So we had to fly another airline, and we got there a day late, consequently. And when we tried to explain to people why we were late, we would hit this snag. We would say, uh, we Pan-American pilots were on strike. And they would say, what is a strike? And we would say, well, a strike is where the worker feels he doesn't make enough money, and so he stops work until the boss pays him more money. And they would say to us, well, here in the Soviet Union, no such thing could possibly happen because everybody makes enough money. And we would say, well, the United States, they make enough money, too, in many cases, but they want more money. And again, they would say, well, that's not possible because how could anyone want more money if they make enough money? Another thing we couldn't get over to them was our concept of free elections uh, because we would say to them, how is Election Day here in your city? And they would say, well the voter goes down to the polling place and takes a ballot and makes a mark next to the name of the candidate and puts it in a secret box. And we would say, but suppose you don't want to make a mark next to the name of the candidate. Uh, Suppose you don't like that candidate. And the Russian people would say, well, then you just don't go to the polling place. And when we would say, but in the United States, there are many names on the ballot, even the name of a Communist Party candidate, they simply didn't believe it. Well, as I said, the name of the book is Are You Carrying Any Gold or Living Relatives? And you could go down and buy it in your bookstore. And if it isn't it is in your bookstore yet, you could ask for it. And in the long run, at a last resort, you could ask your librarian for it. In many cases, uh, it may save you about $3,000 because if you were planning a trip to the Soviet Union, it's possible you'll read this book and change your mind and go to Atlantic City instead. Now, let's see, I just have a few minutes left, and I suppose I should tell some interesting literary anecdotes because this is a program called The Writer Talks. Um, as I told you, I live in a town with a lot of authors, and now that we're down to the last few minutes, I can't think of any interesting anecdotes. Let me see. Across the road from me lives one of Farrah Strauss and Giraud's top men, and he takes walks along the road wearing a cape. That isn't very interesting, is it? I had dinner last night with John Davis, who wrote The Bouviers, and is Jacqueline Kennedy's cousin, and the only thing I remember, that he ordered lemon sherbet, which is also not very interesting. Uh, George Gordon Lord Byron was 55 pounds overweight, and used to diet on green tea and a cracker, but he does not live in Ridgefield, so that possibly isn't the most interesting thing either. Oh, I have a friend who once flew back from a vacation in the Canary Islands, and the man in the seat next to her was Truman Capote. And she said, Oh, Mr. Capote, I have many good friends in Ridgefield who are writers. And he, being very polite, said, Oh, really? For instance, who? And the only name she could think of of all the famous writers in Ridgefield was Irene Campen, And Mr. Capote says, I've never heard of her. So that was the extent of my fame with Mr. Capote. That's about it. I'll end now. Let's see. If anybody would like to hear me talk anymore, I'm with the Kedic Lecture Bureau, but with them it costs money. Um, I think I'll say goodbye in w- one Russian phrase I remember from the whole linguaphone course. Uh, I think this means goodbye. It means either goodbye or the soup is too salty. Anyway, I'll say it. danya.